Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. calling Tim Fielder. Tim is a cartoonist, illustrator, and animator who specializes in Afrofuturism. He is the founder of Diesel Funk Studios and teaches at institutions such as New York Film Academy and Howard University. His graphic novel, Infinitum, an Afrofuturist tale, follows Alba, an African king who is cursed with the gift of immortality, in a story that quite literally spans space and time. We spoke with Tim about Infinitum, Afrofuturism, and his work as an artist. This interview is also available as a video on YouTube. All right, so joining us today, we have Tim Fielder. He is the author of Infinitum. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about, um, let's start with the title. Where did Infinitum come from? Yeah, Infinitum and Afrofuturist Tell uh, came from my lifelong love of visual Afrofuturism. And visual Afrofuturism is a variant of Afrofuturism. Uh, and Afrofuturism, for those who need to know, is where you deal with the intersection of things like race, uh, race politics, technology, uh, uh, horror, aesthetics. And it's the drama or the product that emanates from that. And that's what Infinitum is. It is a product that's, it, to the best of my abilities, to sum up the total, totality of what Afrofuturism is from the perspective of the far past to our contemporary and to the far future. Great. And my next question was going to ask if you can explain what Afrofuturism is. So you read my mind. You're one step ahead of me. Um, and it seems like Afrofuturism has had a bit of a renaissance in recent years. Um, why, why do you think that is? Uh, it's because it, it's different reasons. I will try to give you a micro answer and a macro answer. Okay. So on a micro answer, uh, more fandom in general, you know, it's why you can go to the New York Comic Con and you have an entire convention center filled with thousands upon thousands of cosplayers. And you say, yo, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a legal aid. Oh, really? So what do you do for a living? You're dressed like Cinderella. What do you do for a living? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a maintenance guy. You know, so fandom, the MCU, these things are commonplace. They're not just for the nerds, right? It's for regular folks. Because the world is basically made of nerds. Bill Gates is a very rich nerd. He, he changed the world with his his, his, his uh, technology. So uh, the, the micro answer is that it is now in and safe to be a nerd and to be a geek and to engage in speculative fiction, science fiction. No one, you know, we can, we can wave our freak flags if, if you will, right? Now, when it comes to the micro level of uh, the macro level, larger level, it's, technology has so dramatically disrupted the way we create, the way we distribute, and the way we manufacture, and finally, the way we consume media. So now, 
I mean, COVID just helped it along. Unfortunately, it's terrible COVID. But now people watch most of their TV or televised or film via streaming. And streaming's not going away. It's here. It's not going anywhere. When you begin to deal with books, more books have sold over the last year. As you can see here, I got a number of them behind me uh, because people love reading books. And because of the streaming nature of things, they need so much content. Books are more popular than they ever uh, have been. So now streaming services are pulling from literature to create new programming. So you add that on top of the fact that because the uh, Black Panther made $1.3 billion, then it had the monetary factor and uh, multinational corporations have obviously responded to that. Uh, I'm grateful for that. I mean, heck, I, I have a partnership with HarperCollins, I'm a star. And it's the first uh, Afrofuturist graphic novel from a big five company, that's crazy. So, because I remember when there was no attention, you know, the last 35 years. So I'm grateful for it now. And, and that's those, that's the long form and short form format. That's great. Um, so in your experience, both as a creator and as a consumer of Afrofuturist uh, media, do you think that, um, what impact do you think Afrofuturism has on very real conversations about race, uh, particularly in the last year in this country? Right. Uh, you know, I could, guess I could start off with uh, something that happened. You know, Yafet Koto, uh, who played Parker, the black uh, uh, crew member in Alien, the first Alien. This is the, 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 the beautiful, dark-skinned black man. Uh, in media, the particularly film media, uh, black characters tend to die they tend to die, they tend to be maimed, or they tend to not be present at all. This is just for black male characters. Black female characters, you mostly didn't see them at all. That's beginning to change now. So I'm 54 right now, right? And I grew up, that was just reality. It wasn't anything you thought about. You had some occasional variants of it where you would see uh, black male and female characters of agency in Afrofuturist pros, you know, Octavia Butler, Samuel Delaney, Stephen Barnes, and you know, it's more prominent now with people like N.K. Jemison, right? But so the reason why it appears to be coming up now is that the initial answers I gave about the way people consume media, the way people manufacture media, but it's really just a combination of demographics are changing, right? Demographics are changing. You know, the world is becoming more of color. There's nothing anybody can do about it other than, you know, do what Gene Roddenberry suggests and just basically recognize that we're all in the melting pot here. And that's not going to change. It's just going to become more of color. And the fact that we are as a community and as a world made better by a more, a larger palette. You know, if you're a painter, you don't want one or two colors. You want you know, if you're dealing with oils, you want 50 colors. But if you're dealing on the computer in Photoshop, you have millions of colors. Why? Because it makes you more dynamic as a community. It makes you more dynamic as an artist. And it allows you to be more dynamic as a consumer. I love that. That's great. Um, so in working on the book, obviously, the story, without giving too much away, it covers 
a lot of ground, um, infinite ground, if you will. Um, so how do ah, you that's good. You're the first person to do that. Well done. Re well am done. I really? I'm right. I'm honored. <laughs> um, so how how did you approach such a um, almost daunting prospect like that? There's so much to cover there. How what was that like? Very good question. So um, obviously there there are times when I'm like, man, I should have added that sequence in there, or man, I should have added that sequence in there. But then the book would be 2,000 pages long, and my eye, my 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 arms would have actually fallen off as opposed <laughs> to feeling like they were about to fall off as I was working on the book. Uh, so immortality is a theme that has appeared throughout speculative fiction. You have it in Highlander. You know, there can only be one. You know, uh, I was about to say Money Penny, but that was a different movie. Sean Connery said Money Penny in the Bond movie, not in Highlander. But so immortality has appeared in all kinds of science fiction. Highlander has appeared, uh, Anne Rice with her vampire uh, series, you know, people who live past the theme, beyond the theme of time. Octavia Butler, her, her, for me, my favorite novel by her was Wild Seed, featured this character, Doro, who's like this, this, um, this crazy yet dynamic immortal. So, I was using the immortality theme to not only have a space of drama for the reader, but also to use it as a device that would narrative, narratively move me through time, right? Because the idea is like, you know, people are like, oh, I love to live forever. No, you don't. You don't want to live forever. You know, you want to live as long as you can and be happy and be healthy. And then you want to just pass your stuff on to your kids, right? So they can remember you and then maybe pass it on to their grandchildren and maybe you'll be remembered a thousand years from now. But, you know, that's that's why um, I really focused on that because it presented an infinite, hey, I'm using your joke again, an infinite <laughs> range of dramatic possibilities. Um. Yeah, I feel like the, um, and you see it in the book, that immortality becomes a burden after a while. Yeah. Uh, but I was going to open up to a random page here um, and just to emphasize ah, how yes. gorgeous the artwork Thank is. You. Thank um, you so much. So can you talk, tell us about your journey as an artist? Um, how, did, how did that start for you? Well, first of all, let me just, um, I find it really moving uh, when people you know, I, I don't know you. I just met you. You know what I mean? And it's so, you have to understand, I've been doing this a long time. And without fail, everyone talks about the visuals. You know what I mean? And as an artist, you know, as a visual artist, you know, you want people to look at your pictures. You want people to look and like your pictures. You know, and that's a simple thing. That's like, you know, when I, with this book, I, look, I'll be honest, I'm trying to be highfalutin and, and, and you know, I want to do something, a storyline that's really complex. And I want people to be able to think of multi like a layer of onions of complexity. And that's nice. But in my core, I'm five years old and I want <laughs> you to like my pictures. No, I'm serious. I'm dead serious. I do. I, want, I do. And, and I want people to enjoy the images because uh, I'm a still, I still teach to this day. I don't know what I'm thinking of, but you know, even while on tour, I'm teaching. But 
I always tell my students, and this I guess this is appropriate since this is for Harper Academic, I always tell my students that there is a written narrative, but there's also a visual narrative. And when you're dealing with graphic novels, you're dealing with the dance between visual narrative and the written narrative. And it's that drama and that tension that springs up from that. So I have to think, okay, if all the words were taken away from my book, could you still understand the story, right? Now, in certain cases, you're not gonna, right? However, the secret weapon, I know this is really, you know, you know who is, what is he going using those words for, right? <laughs> the, the, the visuals, that's the icing on the cake. The cake is good. The cake is great. It's full of sugar and really fattening material. It's great. It's awesome. But it's the icing that attracts you to the cake. And if I knew, look, I'm going to, you know, Harper's going to be asking people to pay $20, $25 for this book. What right do I have to just throw something together for people who are giving me the privilege of being my readers to just throw something out there? I'm like, no, 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 no. You're going to sit down. You're going to spend 18 hours a day if you have to, to paint these images. Now, everything is in digital. So I'm a hybrid artist. I use photography. I use 3D models. I've been a model now. I think this is my anniversary for almost 25 years, a oh, 3D wow. animation. Yeah, so I use all those techniques that I learned from the animation, the video game design industry as a 2D analog artist. And I put them all together to create something that hopefully people will feel not only passionate about the visuals themselves, but to feel my passion for it. And if I succeeded at that, you know, just like they do in those churches, sometimes they start raising their hands when the spirit hits. That's what, that's what it's like for me. So thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate it. Well, that's great. I love that. Um, when did when did you start um, as an artist? Were you an artist since you were young? What how what was that journey like for you? Wow, I started drawing probably when I was three, okay, four, and as the youngest of four siblings. You know, I didn't have any control over what, you know, hey, what are we going to do for extracurricular activities? <laughs> I know, let's go to the movies. It was like, no, nah, we're going to the movies. Come on, you're coming along. Here, hold a popcorn, that type of thing, you know. <laughs> so, but I'm the one out of the four that stuck with the comics. And all of my four brothers, all of us are artists, right? Uh, for me, I've been drawing comics since I was three, four. And then around Star Wars happened when I was 10, 9, 10, which, oh, you know, that kind of, you know, made me wake up. Big Star and Wars then, here, so I, I feel exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> Star Wars, even bad Star Wars is good Star Wars. It's like pizza. You know, you got a bad pizza, <laughs> but you're not going to turn down a slice of pizza. You're going to eat it anyway. It's, it's pizza, right? So it's <laughs> so like Star Wars. So, right. People ask me, man, you're doing your own books. That's got to be awesome. I bet if someone came to you from Disney and said, yo, would you work on a Star Wars film or a Star Wars comic? You turn them down. I was like, because uh, mm, <laughs> it's Star Wars, right? So, so I did science fiction and comics up till uh, uh, 12. But then 13, then I had this uh, episode with my oldest brother where he brought to my attention how important it was to be able to be black, a black person and to see yourself in speculative fiction. And I've been doing science fiction, 
comics, black characters, all in digital, uh, all on paper, all those different things for the majority of my life. Both do the good times and the bad times, my friend. <laughs> but I did it. I did it. That's great. I love that. Um, and so you mentioned earlier um, your teaching. So how have your students been responding to the book? Have they have they been talking to you about it at all? You know, it's weird because uh, the book just launched on January 19th in the United States. As of this recording, the book launches in about another seven hours in the UK. Oh my right? goodness. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, so, you know, it's, it's like, you know, they're seeing all this stuff happen to me in real time. So they're seeing it and it's almost like, so what happened this time? Well, this time, you know, I did the commercial with Microsoft and that's, and they're freaking out on it because they're seeing me on Zoom, Zoom. Trust me, I'm not dressed like this on Zoom in my class. I just like, you know, you got your beanie, you know, you put that on your head and you're ready to go, right? <laughs> but they see a working artist. They see a working artist and they see, and that's important to young folks. And it's like, you know, let me, let me be honest. It's not just important to young folks. It's important to folks who are not so young. You know, we exist in a world now where uh, you remember, well, how old are you? You, you, you look like you're in your uh, late 20s, late 20s, early, early 30s, maybe? Late, tw 29 in a few weeks, so. All right, you're 29. Yeah, you just said, you know, I'm just like my oldest kid. Yo, man, you're young. Anyway, <laughs> so it's so fascinating because you know, there was a world where it was only like 10 people who decided who could break in a media landscape. You know, this person can break, that person there can't break. This person can break. And it would be legions of folks who could never break through with their work. And I came up in that environment as a young artist. It's so fascinating to be a middle-aged artist now. And now folks who never got a crack at putting their work out to the public are basically being given that opportunity. And I do not take that for granted. I understand how important it is, particularly as the first, you know, there've been other Afrofuturist graphic novels, but this is the first one from a big five. You know, you got all of the different big publishers and this was mine was, this is it. You know what I mean? So I could either help the Afrofuturist community or I could destroy it, right? But the way to succeed is to do two things. Do a great book make yourself available to the people whose job it is to help promote and pitch your stuff. I do classroom visits constantly, constantly. I have a network of scholars who are in the Afrofuturist community who like, oh, Tim, would you, you know, would you mind coming to my class? I'm like, absolutely. Why? Because those people are teaching my books. Those people that read their, their students are readers of my books. So what kind of, outside of a musician, what kind of artist gets that kind of immediate feedback? It's like on the ground advertising for your book, but they also give you feedback as you're creating the work. So that has been my experience. I am so proud. I recognize it's a privilege to do this. I understand it's a responsibility you know what I mean? I can't like, you know, we can't do nothing too crazy in my public appearances. You know, I can't, ah! 
wild out of anything. You, know, you gotta, you know, you can you can be crazy in your books, but you still have to. There's a way I have to present myself public facing. And uh what a wonderful privilege, man. That's all I can tell you. It's fantastic. Um, so for these other students reading your books, uh, what do you what do you hope that or your book, what do you hope that they gain from that? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for saying plural because there will be more books. I appreciate it. No, 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 no. This right here is the self-published book I did, right? Oh, Maddie's well, Rocket. That's going to be next. This is going to be next. I'm going to do it. We're going to do it as a trilogy. Just wait. Awesome. Just watch. All right. So thank you. And when it comes to younger folks who maybe are coming up behind me, you know, what a, what a great gift that I actually can be. If you know, if they allow me, because let's be frank, this could be over tomorrow. Like I, I always tell folks in interview, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in Keanu Reeves. He says this can be, all be over tomorrow. You don't know. It could be over tomorrow. People, I could step in a pothole. I could be done. I could say something nasty and about of losing my temper that completely ruins everything. So I am savoring every moment of this and to have the opportunity to, to serve as an example for not just younger readers, but younger practitioners of what I do. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to be a symbol for people that come after them? That, that's immortality, right? Because you're remembered by people who are going to be alive 500 years from now. So absolutely, I, I'll take this in any day of the week. I hope I answered your question there. <laughs> yeah. Because like he's, yeah. like, he's talking about immortality. <laughs> right, right, right. No, definitely, definitely. I love it. Um, so just one more question for you. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast, since um, this is primarily for teachers and their students. Mm -hmm. As a student, who was your favorite teacher? Ooh, a, a lady by the name of Sister VNA. Mm -hmm. Fifth grade, uh, her, her, she was a woman, uh, a nun who had, because I went to a Catholic uh, uh, school in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where I grew up. And this woman came out of the wild woods, I guess. And she was the strangest nun I've ever encountered. She had a car. Uh, I think maybe she smoked a little weed from time to time. But <laughs> she was absolutely amazing. And she showed me how the world could open up. I'll say this last thing about her. Uh, and I think she's still alive, Sister VNA. She used to take our classes. She would allow, and you can't do that now, but she would say, if you want to go on a trip, you will reserve time with her and you would contribute $5 to gas. So it would be five of us and she would take us on trips to other counties in her car. So it would be me and five other kids and she would do this once a week or once every two weeks. So we would go to Memphis, Tennessee. We would go to Grenada, Mississippi. And sometimes we would do that just to go by the convenience store to buy comics. Or sometimes we would go just to walk through the mall. But she showed us that the world was much bigger than where we were. And that was essential. And librarians and teachers do that too. She sounds really great. She was um, awesome. Well, Tim, again, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. and. Infinitum opens tomorrow in UK. Go to Harper, uh, HarperCollins.com, UK or Harper UK. 
And also it's available here stateside. You can go to Harper. You can even go to Walmart and get this thing, man. It's <laughs> incredible. You can. You can go to Walmart and order it online. It's incredible. So thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Um, I'll also mention that by the time this goes up, it'll already be out in the UK. So it will listen- be out. I love my UK brothers and sisters. I love y'all. If you're listening to UK, we are speaking to you into the future. <laughs> Final thing. If teachers or administrators want me to come to their school, please ask. I'm here. I'm available. It's COVID land. I can't leave. I can stand in front of the camera and talk to your students. Thank you so much. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Tim. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.